I recommend taking a long, hard look into yourself and identifying what you believe in, what you value, what you stand for, what you're all about. Because when you identify your values, that makes life so much simpler. And that honestly is the secret, not just of confidence, but of happiness. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. Today's guest is the absolute powerhouse that is Cindy Gallup. Cindy's background is in advertising, and she was chairman and president of major advertising firm Bartle Bogle Hegarty, BBH. Today, she is founder of Make Love Not Porn, which, as you'll hear her explain, she founded based on the realisation that as a society, we are hopeless at talking honestly about sex. And as a result, porn de facto, has become sex education to everyone's detriment. The mission is to end rape culture. I love Cindy. I actually felt a little starstruck speaking to her. One thing I should warn you, there is some colourful language in this. Just in case you're listening with kids in earshot, you may want to save this episode for later. So, Cindy, my impression of you is that you are completely fearless you 100% speak your mind. I get the impression that you don't care what people think of you. Is my assessment right? Or is there any self-doubt? I was going to ask, is there any self-doubt, any confidence lacking underneath? Um, no, but to, but to be perfectly frank, Pippa, I'm regularly asked, you know, Cindy, how do you get to be this confident? And my response is six to three years of life. Because by the time you're my age, you absolutely could not care less what other people think. And Honestly, I really don't feel I have any self-limiting beliefs, but that's a function as much of how old I am as anything else. Mm. So as a child? Obviously, um, as a child, as a teenager in my 20s, I was as subject as anybody else to the fact that the moment we're born as women, everything around us conspires to make us feel insecure about absolutely everything to do with ourselves. The way we look, the way we talk, the way we move nice skills do this, nice skills don't do that. We spend the rest of our lives coming back from that. And unfortunately, a lot of women never do. But in my case, as I say, just the sheer experience of growing older, seeing what really matters, finding, you know, your way in the world, that is enormously powerful. At what age do you think you'd let it all go? What can I look forward to? Um, honestly, it doesn't work like that, you know, because again, you know, I'm regularly asked, what was the one moment when blah, blah, blah. And there, yeah. there, there really wasn't in the sense that all of this is a gradual realization over time. 
So my mission, as you know, with this podcast is to help people who listen, address and hopefully get over to an extent their self-doubt and limiting beliefs. I read an article where you wrote, I'm going to quote at you, we live in a world that celebrates self-belief, but it's far more important to have self-awareness. Could you talk to us about getting this balance right? Sure. So, and this is actually what I say when people say, okay, so it's all very well being comfortable at the age of 63, but for people who are not that age, you know, what do you recommend? Honestly, it's very simple. If you've never done this before, I recommend taking a long, hard look into yourself and identifying what you believe in, what you value, what you stand for, what you're all about. Because when you identify your values, that makes life so much simpler. Life still throws you all the shit it always will, but you know how to respond to that shit in any given situation in a way that is true to you. And that honestly is the secret, not just of confidence, but of happiness. Knowing that you are living your life and working your work in a way that is true to your values. And when you know you're doing that, You don't give a damn about what anybody else thinks because all that matters is that you are true to yourself. So my day job, Cindy, is that I lead podcasts for Tiger Hall and I spend my days speaking to people largely about professional development topics. So I have two professional topics that I want to get your sort of against the grain take on. One is about leadership and and gender in leadership and a lot of the time, the messaging is that women need to act more like men to get to the top. In fact, the same article that I just quoted, you also wrote, the real problem is not a lack of competent females, it's too few obstacles for incompetent males, which explains the surplus of overconfident, narcissistic and unethical people in charge. What do you think needs to happen for more women to rise up the ranks? Well, um, exactly what you've just referenced. So you are talking about one in a series of articles I've written for the Harvard Business Review with my dear friend, uh, Dr. Thomas Hamoro Pramuzic. For the benefit of our listeners, Thomas wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review, gosh, uh, 10 years ago now, that is one of their most read of all time. The title of his HBR article was, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders?, And the key premise of his article, as you said, is we talk a lot, quite rightly, about the many barriers facing brilliant women, but a far bigger problem is the lack of obstacles for incompetent men. This is one of the most read Harvard Business Review articles of all time. So to must turn into a book also called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders, which I highly recommend to everybody. Um, I blurred the book for him. Um, I think, you know, he reached out to me on social media after I shared the shit out of that original article because I loved it so much. And and then, you know, he was in New York and came around to visit and, and we've been friends ever since and then co-authors on several articles because our worldviews mesh and I bring the female lens and he brings the male lens. But basically, we live in a male-dominated patriarchal business world and society. And... What that means is that women are constantly evaluated against what people think leadership should be, which, and all they ever see is male um, leadership. Honestly, the complete opposite is true, because I've been saying for years, um, and for years before Tomas and I wrote those articles, 
we would all be far better off if we had many more women in leadership and men were able to learn from the female model of leadership. Because, you know, you will hear regularly in this context, you cannot be what you cannot see. And that applies to men just as much as to women. Men badly need female leadership role models as much as women do, because men cannot be what they cannot see. And if all men see is the male version of leadership, that is coaching them and training them and developing them in very bad habits. I really object when women are told to speak more like men, because it's not about getting women to say sorry less. We would all be a whole lot happier if men said sorry a whole lot more. It's not about telling women not to qualify their speech with, oh, I was just. We'd all be a lot happier if men qualified their speech with, oh, I was just. Um, and so what I really encourage people to do is to flip the gender lens and look at how enormously effective women are at leading and managing and getting things done. And I encourage men especially to adopt female leadership role models and base themselves on how women leaders operate because they will be much better leaders as a result. So you've reached the highest ranks of the advertising industry, really. I imagine that there have been quite a few occasions where you were the sole woman around the table. Did you struggle with that? The, th the way to think about this is, you know, I'm, I'm regularly asked, you know, so Cindy, you know, what sexism did you encounter coming up the ranks in advertising? And my response is always, a fish does not know what water is. Because of course I was surrounded by sexism, but it was the norm. And so I simply never noticed it. And similarly, it didn't enthrall me that I was the only woman on the BBH group board the only woman in too many gatherings. But that was kind of the norm. And so, again, it was only as I got older and more senior that I was determined to make sure that that was not the case, especially, you know, when I was running the agency as I was at BBH New York. Because I'm very straightforward about the fact that my successful advertising career can be attributed purely and simply to luck. I was incredibly lucky. And I was incredibly lucky in two respects. The first is that I was incredibly lucky that I was never sexually harassed in a way that ended my career. I was absolutely sexually harassed, but never, as happens for so many other women in our industry and everybody else's, I was never sexually harassed in a way that resulted in retaliation, being managed out of the agency, being managed out of the industry altogether. And that happened to so many women and still happens to so many women in our industry. And the second thing that I was incredibly lucky with was that I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of female advertising bosses I had in my entire career, two. I, at every agency I worked at, I worked predominantly for men. But I was lucky enough to work for men who saw my potential before I did, wanted me to succeed, championed me, and gave me every opportunity to do so. And that is incredibly rare in our industry. The vast majority of women never, ever work for men like that. They work for men who feel threatened, sabotage their careers, hold them down, keep them back, and actively do not want them to succeed. So I attribute 
my success in advertising purely to luck. I'm so glad to hear you had you had some brilliant bosses who could do that for you. But yeah, very lucky indeed. The other professional topic I wanted to ask you about is, is connected. It's about diversity, equity and inclusion. Because I know that you feel that DEI trainings do more harm than good. Could you explain this? Sure. So I'll explain that directly and then back out of that for a broader perspective. Here's the problem. When a company CEO, the leadership team goes, we're all about diversity inclusion. And we now have a chief diversity officer and we have all these amazing diversity initiatives and we're going to give you all diversity training and we're all about diversity inclusion. So two things about that. The first is that when you bang on about diversity inclusion, it makes the people who are currently in the cultural majority feel they and their status are being threatened. In other words, white people, white men and women. And that sets up a negative reaction within your company that does not create an environment and a workplace culture in which any diversity inclusion efforts are going to thrive. Because people who are not the diverse audience you're talking about feel bitter and resentful at the fact that all the attention appears to be going not to them. And the second thing is, it is fundamental human nature to feel that when we're doing something good in one area, it's okay to balance that out by doing something bad in another. So the very mundane example is, I just had a Diet Coke, so now it's okay to eat the bag of chips. Equally, in a company, when you bang on about diversity, when you have a ton of diversity initiatives, that makes it very easy for the same dynamic to happen, which is, oh, we've got diversity taken care of over there, so I can carry on operating the same way I always have. So that's why um, diversity trainings don't work. And, and by the way, there are a ton of data-driven studies that prove this, by the way. What I recommend, and, and you know, I work as a, a diversity inclusion consultant, but I operate very differently because I am absolutely not, you know, the you know, diversity trainer or the, you know, diversity inclusion, you know, workshop person. I bring to diversity inclusion what our industry prides itself on, but never operates in this area, which is the only way you're going to make diversity inclusion work is through extremely ingenious strategy and highly creative execution. Our creative philosophy at BBH was we don't sell, we make people want to buy. I don't sell diversity. I make people want to buy it. And so I've worked with companies on an approach where they've brought me in because they want to integrate diversity inclusion into their company culture, into the workplace. Part of my approach is do not tell people that's why I'm here. Give your people a completely different reason. You know, I worked with one up and coming ad agency on this, which involved me going and spending a day with them and meeting all of their staff. And um, it was a relatively small agency, but they, they had they were relatively new. But they had this very laudable ambition, which was we want to be integrated and diverse and inclusive from the get go. So we'll bring you in now at the start of our journey. And I said, tell everybody that you have hired me to help with business development. I'm here to help you grow the agency. And so I'm going to come in and have a number of conversations with your employees that are ostensibly about familiarizing myself with the agency in this context. 
But in actual fact, what those conversations will enable me to do is advise you on what you need to do strategically and executionally to make sure you are fully diverse and inclusive from every point this day onwards. And that ended up working out really well. So because of what I've identified as the issues when you go, whoopee, we've got tons of you know diversity training in the, work- in the workplace, I recommend adopting a very different approach. And also, Pippa, I want to just relate this to what we we're talking about earlier. So six years ago, when the New York Times broke their Harvey Weinstein story and Me Too took off as a phenomenon. So I'd been speaking out publicly about sexual harassment for many years before that Me Too moment. And I talked about it publicly because no one else would. And because I did, tons of women in our industry wrote to me with horrific stories. And I would always try and encourage them to tell those stories in the media. And none of them ever would because they were too scared, understandably. And so when the Harvey Weinstein story broke in the New York Times, I thought maybe finally now that all of those brave women have testified, I can get women to do the same thing in our industry. So I post on Facebook, this is six years ago when Facebook was much more influential than it is currently, because right now nobody sees my post on Facebook. But back in the day, I just posted and I said, women of the advertising industry, the time has come to uncover our own Harvey Weinsteins. Email me with your stories and I will introduce you to trusted trade industry journalists who will report these stories and name names. And I did that without thinking too much about it. And an absolute avalanche hit my inbox and proceeded to for the next six months and continues to this day. I was so horrified by everything that showed up. I was due to speak at the 3% conference a few weeks later. And at the last minute, I completely rewrote my talk. And so if our listeners go to YouTube and look up Cindy Gallup, 3% conference 2017, it's a talk called Where the Money Is, because that's what it was going to be about until this happened. I rewrote the entire front half of that talk to be about what had shown up in my inbox. And I said to the audience that I was especially appalled because I'd always known it was bad, but I'd never known how bad it really was. One of the things I said to the audience in that talk, and I've been saying ever since, is what showed up in my inbox made me change my own perspective. Because up until then, I had talked about the fact that the single biggest business issue facing our industry was its lack of diversity inclusion. I said to the 3% conference audience, I've changed my own view. That is not the single biggest business issue facing our industry. The single biggest business issue facing our industry is sexual harassment. Because sexual harassment basically manages women out of the industry. Sexual harassment derails women's careers, destroys women's dreams, pulverizes women's ambitions. And sexual harassment, therefore, keeps out of leadership and influence and power the female leaders who would make diversity and inclusion happen. That's the fundamental problem. You're very often someone who who says things that go against the grain. You don't seem to conform to a lot of things that other people feel the pressure to conform to. And I've really spent quite a lot of my life conforming and scared to not conform, maybe for fear of being disliked or for fear of not belonging. And I suppose this is a a limiting belief I have that I might not be liked if I do something socially that's not the norm. 
Any advice? Yes, absolutely. So a couple of things on that, um, Pippa. The first is I'm a very big fan of be your own filter. And what I mean by that is, as you will have seen, my LinkedIn bio, my Twitter bio, etc., says, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. Now, how that came about was many years ago, I was in a meeting with some potential consultancy clients, and I was talking to them about my approach to consulting. And I said to them, I consult very selectively only for clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And then lightheartedly off the cuff, I went, I like to blow shit up. I'm the Michael Bay of business. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And I left the meeting and I thought, actually, that's a really good way of summing up what I do. And I've been using that line ever since. But the reason I use that line is not as a bit of creativity, a bit of whimsy, a bit of fun. I use that line entirely deliberately because when I characterize what I do in that way, it attracts to me the people who want what I do. It repels the ones who don't. And I want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort and money. And so I recommend to everybody, you know, this is why I say identify what you stand for, what you're all about, and then put that out there. Because you will attract your tribe to you, the people who get it and love it, and you will keep away the ones who don't, and you want to stay away from them. And, you know, another thing that I recommend to people is very simply, stay away from people and places and things that make you feel bad about yourself. You know, actively understand when you are being made to feel bad about yourself in a particular situation and just do not hang out with those people, go to that event, be in that place ever again. You know, when I first started following you, I actually I had to Google, perhaps embarrassingly, who Michael Bay was. <laughs> <laughs> I love the tagline. I did have to Google it. Many people have said to me over the years, Michael Bay should be calling himself the Sydney Gallop of movie making. Yes. <laughs> if anyone listening who doesn't know, film director, Transformers, Armageddon. A lot of things, a lot of Very things. Very fond of explosions. Yes, fond of explosions. <laughs> I really want a tagline. How can I find my own tagline? So th this is something that I do as a coach and a consultant because this is actually very important in a professional context. What I say to people is tell people how to think about you. And so you absolutely want to find that soundbite that sums up what you're all about in a way that makes your professional benefit to whoever you want to be your audience very clear. And this then becomes basically how you introduce yourself, you know, in a business context, at cocktail parties, etc. And it doesn't have to sum up everything about you. It just has to be sufficiently intriguing that people go, ooh, tell me more. Important thing too is that whatever it is, you should enormously enjoy saying it. Okay, so of course I want to ask you about sex. It would feel like a glaring omission if I didn't. Now, sex is an area where people tend to have a lot of self-doubt, and you, by contrast, seem incredibly, incredibly confident. And you've been very frank about the fact that you're now a more mature woman and you like to date much younger men. We live in a time where women, women particularly, are very self-conscious of ageing, and that being with a much younger man would be totally 
anxiety inducing for a lot of women. Could, could you share a little bit about your story here and your experience? Sure. So just to contextualize this for our listeners, I am somebody who has never, ever wanted to be married. I have never wanted children. Very glad I always knew that as opposed to finding out the hard way mm. by having them. You know, I do not consider myself a relationship person. I adore being single. I cannot wait to die alone. And I date younger men casually and recreationally for sex. But it's important to say that, you know, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. I've never consciously, intentionally planned anything. I'm a big believer in serendipity. I love my ex-boss, Sir John Hegarty's wonderful mantra, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. And that's very much how I live my life. So I began dating younger men by complete accident because I was 20 odd years ago running an ad agency in New York. And we were asked to pitch for an online dating brand. In advertising, when you pitch for a client's account, you have to experience the client's product and the entire competitive landscape. So we all had to online date. And this was 20 odd years ago, and none of us, including me, ever had, because back then, you know, it wasn't a thing like, like it is today. The rest of my pitch team at the agency were all married, dating somebody, living with somebody. So they all went online as fake personas. They created identities and profiles. I was single. I thought, I have to do this for business reasons. Why not do it for real? You know, let's see what this whole online dating thing is all about. So I posted my profile on a ton of sites and was very honest about everything, including my age. And much to my surprise, I got an avalanche of responses, the vast majority of which were from younger men, and in fact, much younger men. You know, I suddenly realized that I was every young guy's fantasy. Attractive older woman, high-flying career, did not want to settle down, you know, was just looking to have some fun, which... You know, at the time, I just started an advertising agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace, Madison Avenue. I was working 24-7. Fun was severely missing from my life. So I thought, gosh, hadn't thought about this as a dating strategy. It works for me. And I've been dating younger men very happily ever since. And, you know, here's the interesting thing, because so I meet the younger men I date on cougar dating sites. I applaud the rise of the niche dating site where everybody knows why they're there. And even I, who publicly champion this type of relationship, even I am gobsmacked by the amount of younger men on there who want to date older women. And when I say date, I mean date. You know, these are not just younger men who want to have sex with older women. These are younger men who are actively looking for relationships with older women. And I think the reason I'm so taken aback by that, and I respond to maybe 1% of all the approaches I get, is that we are not seeing younger men loud and proud about that in society as a whole because of the double standard that goes older man, younger woman, nobody bats an eyelid, older woman, younger man, somehow way less socially acceptable, mm. you know, which also again is why I'm very public, you know, about this relationship model. And, and I'm public about it too, because I believe that everybody should be free to design the relationship model that works for them which, by the way, may be different at different points in your life, you know, depending on what you want and need at those points, versus a very limited number. Society says it's okay for us to operate. So I talk publicly about how I operate my dating life because I am nobody's definition of a cougar. So as I said, I meet my younger men on, on cougar dating sites for casual sex, basically. But no matter how casual the relationship, I have one fundamental criteria. They have to be 
a very nice person. I have fantastic radar for very nice people. As a result, I only date utterly lovely younger men in an atmosphere of mutual trust, respect, affection, liking. And as a result, ironically, my so-called casual relationships go on a lot longer than most people's so-called committed ones. I date younger men off and on, sporadically, over periods of two, three, four, five, ten, fifteen years. And that's because they may go on to date women their own age, they may go on to marry women in their own age, but we like each other. We stay friends. We'll meet platonically for, you know, drinks or coffee. And then every so often those relationships end, every so often those marriages end, and they come back. It's very nice. I'm delighted that it's working so well. So on the topic of sex, I've heard you speak previously about your mother who was quite traditionally minded and she encouraged you to stay a virgin until you were married, which was advice you did not heed. So I'm curious to know, as many people's limiting beliefs tend to stem from, from childhood and, and then limiting beliefs create self-doubt, I feel that some of my limiting beliefs come from parental expectations about how I'm supposed to live. Uh, and to be clear, I've got absolutely lovely, wonderful parents. But, but when I was younger, especially when I did something different to what was expected or something a bit outside of the box, there was a lot of self-doubt. Did you ever feel this weight of expectations to be a certain way? Uh, was there a journey to getting past? Oh, oh of course. Yes? No, of course. Um, and, and again, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm half English and half Chinese. Uh, my father was English. Um, he passed away a few years ago. My mother is Malaysian Chinese. And I was born in the UK. When I was six, we moved to Brunei in Borneo. So I grew up in Asia, where there is a host of societal expectations. Um, my childhood was characterized by one of the most obvious, which is extreme academic pressure. My parents were both teachers very focused on education. For me and my sisters, it was come top of the class or don't come home, you know, all of that. But I think um, the important thing to bear in mind, it, because we are all shaped by parental expectation, absolutely. Hopefully, as we get older, um, we can also escape it. And, you know, the thing to bear in mind is, first and foremost, every parent wants their child to be happy. That's what matters. And so you should absolutely live your life according to what you want to do versus what your parents want you to do. Because when you can demonstrate to them that you are extraordinarily happy doing so, that is absolutely the only thing that matters. And in my case, it took years for my mother to realize this, because again, being Chinese, I'm, I'm the oldest of four girls. My three sisters are all married. So that took the heat off me. Two of them have children, so that took the heat off me as well. My younger sister, Melanie, is like me, doesn't want children. But, you know, my mother now understands, and has understood for a number of years, that, that I am one of those people who is blissfully happy on her own. You know, I could not be more ecstatic about the fact that I, I don't have a husband and I have no children. In fact, um, I was doing a podcast interview a little while back, uh, which was themed around health and wellness. And the interviewer said to me, so Cindy, especially as a startup founder with a very stressful, you know, working life, what daily self-care do you practice? You know, do you have any forms of daily self-care? And I went, oh, yeah, absolutely. My daily self-care is I have no husband, I have no children. <laughs> And oh my God, I live a much happier life than pretty much everybody I know as a result. And, and at the end of the day, that's what matters to your parents. When they can see that you are thriving and happy 
living the way you want to live versus the way they thought you ought to live. Okay, one thing I wanted to ask you about was resilience. And this is in regard to your, I think it was your first TED Talk where you announced Make Love Not Porn. And they were reluctant to put it on YouTube. And you persuaded them and you said that you were going to monitor all of the comments. And correct me if if I've got any of this wrong. And you went through and you answered almost all of almost all of the comments you had and a lot of really awful, like trolling, horrible comments. And I I heard you talk about this in another interview. And I just thought, gosh, Cindy must be so resilient to be able to, there's that expression, don't feed the trolls. And you've just gone and done exactly the opposite where you've gone and read all of these horrible trolling comments. And then you befriended some of the, the trollers. Well, um, so so what happened was I launched Make Love Not Porn at TED in 2009. I became the only TED speaker to utter the words, come on my face on the TED stage six times in succession. And because of that, TED, who were very supportive, but dithered about whether or not to post my talk on TED.com. And eventually, Chris Anderson, the curator of TED, said to me, Cindy, we're not going to post your talk on TED.com because TED.com is visited by parents with kids and teachers with kids. In other words, by the way, exactly my target audience. And by the way, it's a huge shame he didn't, because that is why my TED Talk to this day does not have the volume of views it would have if it had been posted on TED.com. And by the way, it is now there, but that was only a couple of years ago. I kept asking Chris, and finally a couple of years ago, he did put it on TED.com. I'm not sure. You know, I suspect it's a bit buried there. It's not, not particularly highlighted. But he said to me, we're going to put it on YouTube and direct people to YouTube from TED so we can say it's not actually on our site. So, you know, I wasn't thrilled about this, but okay, at least they were going to post it on the TED channel on YouTube. So I said, okay. And they post on YouTube and they turn the comments off. And I said to TED, I want you to turn the comments back on. And I undertake that I will monitor the comments myself and I will respond to them wherever I think it's appropriate but I said, the reason I want to turn the comments back on is my talk had the extraordinary global response it did because everybody is dying to talk about sex and we never get to. And, you know, it's important to remember 14 years ago, I was the very first person ever to stand up on stage and publicly identify that when we don't talk openly and honestly about sex, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I said, I absolutely want people to be able to have a dialogue around this. And, you know, as I said to them, you know, I will monitor the comments and I will respond. I will be the comments moderator on the YouTube thread for my talk. Obviously, there were a ton of very positive comments, but there were also a ton of very negative ones. It's interesting because I use my YouTube TED Talk comments experience as a case study for brands. Because many brands are too nervous to engage publicly with comments and responses to whatever they've posted or or run. I tell them it's extremely important that they do because, you know, a comments thread is a bit like two people fighting in the street. If you don't jump in there and break it up fast, more people pile on before you know you've got an entire riot on your hands. Okay, so I would jump in on the negative comments And a very important thing is also to do that with a sense of humor. Somebody would say, 
This is so long ago, I'm trying to cast my mind back to, oh my God, you know, who'd want to fuck that wrinkled old hag? And I would reply and go, I know, I really need those facials, right? Or, you know, somebody would say, oh my God, no young man would want to fuck her. And I would go, you'd be amazed how many young men like to do charity work. So anyway, so I'd... <laughs> and by the way, the TED team was saying to me, oh my God, Sydney, you're amazing, you know. People would apologize to me in the comments thread or private, private message me and apologize because, you know, where, where they really persisted, you know, I would say message me privately on here on YouTube. You know, I'd love to just talk to you more about this. And when they did, you would find out what really lay behind the comments. So one young man messaged me and it turned out that he was a virgin at the age of 26, whatever, and never had sex. So I went, have you tried online dating? So he did message me, went, oh, my God. I met a girl. I was going, fantastic. Good on you. You know, then sadly she dumped him, worked my shoulder, went, get back in the game. And yeah, you know, when you engage with people in good faith, straightforwardly, and also with a sense of humor, because honestly, I took none of this personally. I knew that the strength of those responses simply demonstrated how very rarely we talk about sex and how messed up we all are about it. And that is precisely the mission of Make Love Not Born to change that. The same thing applies to brands. Absolutely. Be prepared to engage, do it in good faith, do it as quickly as possible, be open, straightforward, have a sense of humour, and you can really change the way those conversations go. I applaud you so much for doing that. And it's a, a brilliant story. So many people would crumble at having horrible things said about them online. I mean, I, mean, I will say that, um, so again, that was all happening 14 years ago. Um, these days, I recommend to don't read the comments, actually. You know, absolutely put what you want out there. Ignore the haters. And um, the important thing is that you don't let them shut you up and keep your voice out of online discourse. So, you know, if you're worried about that, just post whatever you want to post on LinkedIn, on Twitter, whatever, and then ignore the replies. You know, that, that's a perfectly valid way to operate. Good idea. Good advice. Cindy, given that you're so confident now... Is there anything you think you can't achieve if you set your mind to it? Oh, my God. Yep, um, absolutely. Because in anything one sets out to do, there are always circumstances that are beyond your control. But, you know, the way I encourage people to think about it, you know, as somebody who has battled every possible prejudice to build and grow Make Love Not Porn over the past 14 years, when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. So whatever the obstacle is, there is always a way over, around, under it. And you just have to find that path. As I said earlier, what our industry is good at really trains you up in that extremely ingenious strategy, highly creative execution. I always say that my 38 career in advertising was very good training for what I do now because I've spent 38 years working in the business of getting people to do things they originally had no intention of doing. Okay, Cindy, I've got the same wrap-up question for everyone for Tiger Therapy. I'm asking everyone if they can nominate somebody else to come on this podcast, either someone they think doesn't have any self-doubt or limiting beliefs or someone who you think has a really interesting perspective they can share. Honestly, this is the kind of question where my mind goes completely blank because I know so many amazing, especially women. And so, you know, honestly, I, I would say to you, 
and anybody else, by the way, looking for, you know, candidates for podcast interviews, follow me on LinkedIn and look at the community of women who engage in my comments, because there are extraordinary women there. And a ton of them will be perfect for this. Noted. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Total pleasure, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.